This podcast is sponsored by Speaker Rocks Media, where we hand-build podcasts just like this one to create online communities for brands like yours. If you'd like to learn more, head over to speakerboxmedia.com. Get to know ourselves better because without really truly understanding ourselves, can we truly begin to understand others? A lot of people are afraid of going deep within themselves, digging deep, doing the work. But the reality is the more comfort you have with knowing who you are, the more ease you develop for understanding who others are. Welcome to the B2B Growth Hacks podcast, the show that helps entrepreneurs like you unlock opportunities for growth in business. I'm your host, Sarah Smith, and this is B2B Growth Hacks, a podcast powered by Speakerbox Media. Welcome back to B2B Growth Hacks. We are in our Innovate or Die series, and today I have a great conversation crafted with someone who I'm really excited to talk to, and that's Ingrid Thorpe. She's a business leader, culture strategist, and the founder of Thorpe Consulting, Ingrid, welcome to B2B Growth Hacks. Sarah, hi. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Always happy to share my learns in this space with any new founders, entrepreneurs, and just folks who are interested in the topics. And the topic we're talking about today is diversity and inclusion. It's been a big topic lately in the business landscape, but it certainly isn't new. And if we want to have resilient businesses, and organizations, this is a topic we can't afford to skip. So Ingrid, tell me a little bit about Thorpe Consulting, a little bit about your work in the DNI space, and anything else you'd like to share that's interesting. Sure. Well, I'm a rare person in the DEI space just in general because I actually have been doing this since 1995. Straight out of college, it was my first gig, and it has always been my internal side hustle within corporate. And because until recently, DNI has not been a paid position. It's just been an extra like an ERG kind of situation. And that's always been the way that it has been. While there are certain companies, obviously like the Deloitte's and Accenture's of the world who have done tons of investment into the space because of the research that they've also done that continues to drive why this is important. So That's one. And then also as an out Latina immigrant, I mean, check off the list. If you need a performative list, I'm like, I check off nearly every box. I think veterans is maybe the only one I don't check, but I'm a huge supporter of them. And that though is that has afforded me this opportunity to really bring to my colleagues, my coworkers and my employers a different perspective when they're considering what DEI looks like. And in terms of representation for the longest time, and particularly since like mid-1960s and the 70s, it was affirmative action is what it was called. And a lot of folks are still in that mindset of it's a black-white thing. And it isn't. Because in the 70s, then it became equal rights were the table for women. Interestingly enough, that ratification or that ratifying that amendment still hasn't been signed to date. So that's really an interesting component of why we're still stuck in viewing DEI as a race and a gender issue because we still haven't overcome or gotten to solutions for how to address these things. Yeah. And that's a valid point is that everybody thinks that 
and I hear this all the time in different conversations that aren't we past this yet or haven't we made enough traction for everyone to just work harder and get where they're trying to go? And it's such a mind-blowing thing when I hear people say that. And I think it's due to a lack of education around DEI and what it all encompasses. And one of the things that particularly I know is difficult is And it was difficult for me when I got into different corporate environments is you look around the table and it just simply isn't diverse enough. I mean, when it comes to perspective, when it comes to gender, when it comes to culture, there's so many reasons, sex, that it's not gender identity. There's so many layers to this. And so I'd love to dive in and talk about the fact that at the end of the day, there is room at the table for all of us. There is, as long as somebody's willing to like pull up a chair. Mm. I think it was Shirley Chisholm who famously said, if you don't get a seat at the table, bring your own chair. Yeah. Today, when we look at it, we're like, oh, wow, that's kind of like, it's out there. But it's true. And, and that's what disruptors, as they're known today, that's what they're doing. They're bringing their own chair and really challenging the standard notions of what diversity is and also what inclusion is. There is room at the table and we are the strongest when we take into consideration and account and try out new ideas through the lens of the experience of others. And so that's a really important thing. Many men don't think of pay parity as like a, a concern. It's not necessarily a concern for most men. And it's not top of mind. And it isn't until it affects someone that they care about that Mm -hmm. then it becomes more of an enlightenment tool. So when you've gone through your career, you get married, you have kids and you have a daughter who's now out of college looking for work and is struggling in the workplace because she's being paid less than her brother for the exact same job or being passed over for a promotion. And not until those stories come home do men in positions of power and sometimes authority, do they start considering how that is impacting, if it's impacting their own kid, what's it doing for others who have even less access than maybe their child has? I often speak of John Mack from Morgan Stanley. Famously was at a conference. He was keynoting, not keynoting, he was on a panel at a conference. It was for out leadership, right? It was promoting LGBTQ members within business. And he was one of the panelists and he spoke as to why he was an advocate for inclusion and why he was such a supporter for LGBT inclusion in the workplace. And it was essentially his son came to him and said, I'm afraid that because I'm gay, I'm never going to get ahead. And it wasn't until that moment struck him that he recognized that this was a missed opportunity because he knew his son was bright. He knew his son was creative. He knew his son had tremendous experience and that he would still have the fear of not being employable because he was an out gay man that he took all of this into consideration. And immediately, like the following Monday, he went in and was like, we got to revamp this. We got to do this. Like, let's scrap what we think inclusion is or whatever his words were at the time. And I just remember that like the sum of it was Morgan Stanley is one of the few corporations who has been doing the work 
leading the charge, and interestingly enough, not been patting themselves on the back for you know the last 35 years. And they generally don't have a big float. They really actually put their money where their mouth is in terms of how they support. They would take the money that is allocated for marketing or pride parades or pride parties. And yes, maybe have something smaller, but really use those resources internally. So for training, for promotions, for having informed panels, investing the resources in a way that benefited the entire Morgan Stanley community, not just this one small group. And so that was one of the best examples that I've ever seen of someone publicly stating, here's why I did it. Because I knew if it was impacting my kid, that meant it was impacting God knows how many other kids out there. It was coming from a parental perspective, which we don't often hear about. Why do business leaders make the decisions the way that they do? And here he was on this open platform, clearly and openly sharing the exact reason why he knew it was important for him to do something because he was in a position of authority, of leadership, of power, and could affect change. And he did. And that seed that he planted so many years ago continues to grow and thrive. Morgan Stanley is one of the most inclusive financial services institutions, and very few people consider them that. Many see those that are constantly promoting in their ads or in magazines or whatever ways that they're marketing themselves. But that really speaks to the performative, which we've seen tons of, especially since 2019 with the 50th anniversary of the Stonewall Uprising. And so, you know, there's a lot of stuff that happens in a lot of different ways that folks can participate, do participate. But the most important ways to participate is when you can have a lasting impact. And that's one of the things that a lot of the Deloitte and McKenzie uh, research has shown is that diverse teams have a lesser turnover. They have a more productive community. They're more creative and they recover from failure a lot quicker because they have, even if they have a string of failures, they learn from each one. So each quote unquote failure is really a lesson learned. And so, you know, you got to put a positive spin on all of these different interactions or activities that happen because you want to take something good from even a bad situation. Yeah. And the only way that you get that is from leveraging vast experience, vast talent, and, and just essentially the brain power that should be in your organization to begin with, which comes from diversity of thought. It comes from diversity of experience. It comes from diversity of education. And I think so often we discount, don't get me wrong, a college is great and education is essential, but I see so often that we discount experience. And I think when we really start to think about DE and I in that mind frame of experience, it opens up our mind to the fact that A truly inclusive workplace culture is about so much more than just the color of someone's skin and gender. There are so many different layers to this when it comes to culture, when it comes to disabilities, when it comes to disadvantages. There's just so many layers to this. Talk to me about that. Talk to me about what it looks like to have a truly inclusive workspace and the different areas that we should be thinking about when we're trying to create these type of organizations. Sure. Sarah, one of the things that is interesting is 
this, especially during the times of pandemic, right? We have for the first time in industrialized history, there has been a collective look at the mental health and state of employees in relationship to business. Yet I have been talking and, and it's not just to be like, oh, pat myself on the back or anything, but I've been talking about the importance of inclusion for a very long time because of some of the things that I've seen, whether it's schools and we're seeing the gun violence in schools and where that yeah. comes from. And then also the workplace violence. I've worked with clients who have had incidents of workplace violence where one employee felt attacked, followed the protocol to remedy the situation found there was no remedy, found there was no support. As a matter of fact, was further ostracized. And that person actually ended up in a physical altercation leading in the death of the colleague that had been bullying him, essentially. And in the investigation afterwards to learn, you know, listening to people's responses as to how serious they thought something was, the overwhelming responses were that most people didn't think it was that serious. They thought he was thin-skinned. They thought this didn't need to escalate. What they failed to recognize was had they actually stood up for that individual, made that person feel some semblance of psychological safety, some semblance of psychological support within the workplace and felt that he had absolutely no resources, no recourse, and that he responded in a violent way to the final attack on him. And that was a real eye-opening moment for me in terms of someone crying out for help in the workplace, feeling that they're not being supported and that the support is going to the person who is antagonizing them. And just having these kinds of events shouldn't get to that point. But at the same time, it's like, who is anyone to consider someone's feelings not valid, less than in terms of how we're going to proceed and then actually following through on it. So if a policy is, if you make a colleague feel uncomfortable and they let you know, and then you continue to do it and then they escalate it and you continue to do it, there should be some form of corrective action that needs to take place in order to avoid these kinds of circumstances because we see this. And interestingly enough, I recently ran the New York City Marathon and one of the marathoners that I was running with is actually a workplace shooting victim. He survived. And that was so telling that he would use that platform, this platform of running the New York City Marathon to bring attention to the workplace violence that was happening or that he suffered through in his home state of Texas was really just tremendous. And those of us here in New York, we can't even imagine that kind of experience. While we live in a really densely populated city, we don't really hear about workplace violence like that. And so it's interesting when we consider that. But to get back to your question about how do we create that truly inclusive workplace culture is listen to employees when they come to you in terms of how can we preempt, head something off at the pass, if you will, just to think about the different ways that we can be supportive of someone who maybe just needs to feel heard. Sometimes we listen to respond 
not to understand. And that's culturally speaking, that's a very American thing to do. But also it becomes this, how do I answer that next question or how do I defend myself? And it isn't about that. It's just gaining some understanding to hear that, you know, someone feels so unheard that this is what they will resort to. And one of the ways that we can do that is do more training. Obviously, it starts with leadership. We used to have the game when we were a kid, follow the leader, right? We did what the leader did and we mirrored behavior, we mirrored actions and attitudes and beliefs. And we wanted to emulate whoever the leader was, whoever that designated person was. And also considering when we had the chance to be a leader, what did we do? And so in today's environment, one of the ways that we can show up as inclusive leaders, and you don't have to have the leadership title to be a leader, but you can demonstrate those behaviors by ensuring that you're including folks that are differently abled. A physical disability or hindrance does not mean that a person can't think. It does not mean that they can't be creative or have incredible opportunities. Susan Shear, she's most recent like CEO of a place called Institute for Career Development, which is a hundred year old plus institution founded to help returning first world war veterans who had lost limbs, sight and so on in a rehabilitative environment. And now that institute partnered with Cisco to develop technology training. They've expanded their services, but just to say someone with spinal bifida like would not be the person that someone thinks is the CEO of this hundred plus year old institution. One, as a woman, all of the checklist of things of why I wouldn't think that this is the person that is leading this organization. And she's fantastic. And she's been championing for telehealth for the last 30, 40 years, that has been at top of the list of inclusive practices that the disability community has been championing for was telemeetings, telehealth, telework, all of these things that many would always respond with, it doesn't fit our business model. But yet video conferencing has existed for a very long time and now living through pandemic, all of a sudden, everyone was very easily able to access this concept of doing things via video. And so that I thought was really interesting. There's an actually an article that she penned talking a little bit about it. I think it was celebrating the 40th anniversary of like the ADA Act. So becoming more informed about the different groups that make up part of the tapestry of this country. We talk about inclusion of cultures and languages. There are even religions, right? So right now we're in the holiday season and there's still those hardcore people who say, I'm going to say Merry Christmas. Well, that's great, but not everyone celebrates Christmas. And so are then are you also going to be okay if someone says happy Diwali to you or, you know, have a good Hanukkah or blessings or whatever cultural or religious greeting is appropriate for the different holidays? Well, I don't know is usually the answer. And I always find it interesting where people are very steadfast in holding on to their tradition of what they know and really broadening their mind around the fact that there are so many holidays, literally from October 30th and 31st, I believe is when it starts, all the way through January 15th. That is the holiday season, but many people aren't aware of that. 
they're only aware of the Christian Judeo holidays because that's what everyone thinks is everyone practices. No, it goes beyond that and broadening our mindsets into what are those holidays? And oftentimes they're about hope and faith and humanity and unity and celebrating with gratitude. Those are the things we really can bond based on are these these basic principles of we all want to be grateful human beings. We all want to be nice human beings. We all want to be loving. We all want to be impactful. We all want to be seen. And sometimes I feel like we overcomplicate it. These things are actually much simpler to practice than when you try to go down a list of all the holidays. It's as simple as just saying, I hope you celebrate this time in a way that's meaningful for you. Exactly. I mean, how simple does that feel um, to just release yourself from one, feeling like you need to say things correctly, but two, also feeling like you need to learn everything overnight because it doesn't happen overnight. But there's these simple changes that we can make in our language and how we approach conversation and how we sign off that are really impactful. And I think it always just for me, blows my mind at sometimes how simple the answer can be if you took a step back and actually just had an appreciation for humans. It doesn't matter. You mentioned this example of no one could see her as the CEO with spina bifida in it. And my question is, why not? Exactly. Like how amazing. And here's the truth of it. When you come from any type of background in which you've had to overcome, which that is a lot of people in several Mm -hmm. different facets, you build this muscle of resilience and grit and grace and just experience that is so powerful that they can't be taught in any book. Absolutely. So for me, I'm just like, oh my gosh, why not? And how amazing is it that a young boy or a young girl or someone that's non-binary can look at this person and identify with them and say, that could be me. Absolutely. That's so powerful. Absolutely. And you bring up a, a really good point because everyone thinks like, oh, it's the responsibility of leaders in the workplace to do this. But the reality is it's everyone's responsibility. And we can do this in our homes, with our families and our communities, and we can do it in different spaces. I mean, the running community here in New York City is tremendous. And one of the groups that exists here in New York is called Achilles. And Achilles is a running supportive group for those that are visually impaired or have some physical impairment. They have a guide. There is nothing like more inspiring and challenging when you're running the last mile and all of a sudden here comes somebody who has an Achilles guide and is blowing right past you. And you're like, ah, my challenge is, you know, there's a runner who here I am thinking, Oh, these are my challenges. And here's a runner with additional challenges and they are leaving me in their dust. And I'm just like, that's inspiring to me. That says, you know, get it into high gear. What are you waiting for? Like be part of the program. And it is really amazing. And one of the groups that I do run with is called the New York Runners Team for Kids. And it's actually a national volunteering group where We run to raise money so that all kids of all abilities from the ages of 2 to 18 have an opportunity to participate in the sport. 
get excited, run, learn how to run, and hopefully to get back into some of the more normal routines, which include doing races and brunch or races and breakfast, races and handing out sneakers to kids. And that's across the board. Having a body to show up with is the main thing. When we advertise, like kids in wheelchairs are encouraged to participate because we do have a wheelchair athletes as adults, but where do they get started if they don't get started when they're young? And then also to like destigmatize so much and just normalize humans in the different ways in which they show up. I think that's really important too. Yeah. And it's about bringing some level of innovation to pre-existing concepts and businesses. One of the most exciting examples that I've seen lately that really challenged me as a business leader and just as a Latina woman to think about things differently actually comes from a very well-known company. And the CMO of MasterCard is, I'm going to misspell his name, Raja Raja Manar. I tried Raja, but anyway, yes. So the CMO of MasterCard, he's an amazing thinker. And I sat on a talk of his that he did for the American Marketing Association. And I was fascinated after that. And so I started doing more and more research. And what I realized is just in the last year, MasterCard has done something that no other major credit card has done. And it was two things. One is called the True Name Card which allows members of the LGBTQ community to put their actual name that they'd like to be referred to on the front of the card. Now, obviously, there's a legal requirement to have your legal name on the card. And so it was a very simple fix. Put the name on the back of the card and put the preferred name that they'd like to use on the front of the card until they're able to do whatever they need to do to get all of that paperwork or or documentation corrected for their true identity. But I just thought, how impactful is our name to us and to constantly hear our name misspelled or mismentioned and how that's impactful to me as someone who has a very clear, nice to say English name. But how impactful would it be if somebody kept calling me something else? And everywhere I went, I had to answer to that name. And it really made me step back and really think differently. The second thing he they've come out with in the last year is the touch card. And it is for people who are legally blind or visually impaired. And it was as simple as putting different notches at the top of each card. So in the wallet, you can feel which card you're going to grab by the different notch that's etched into the top of the card. That's brilliant. It's brilliant. It's brilliant. And it's such a simple thing, but it's not, but it's so impactful. And it it goes to show you that no matter how long, old, or what type of legacy organization you work for, or if you're a new org, there's still innovation to be made in this area and how we can take products and ideas and services that have existed and really think differently about them when we start to think about DE&I and how we can be inclusive based on physical disabilities, based on different cultures, based on different language, based based on gender identity, religion. There's so many spaces that we have an opportunity to really show up for different people. And that lights me up. (laughs) I totally feel you on that. Yes, our names are absolutely, they are so important. I mean, and the fact that our parents take such time and care to find the name that they wanted to give us, right? For whatever reason. Interestingly enough, you reminded me of a talk that I saw. Uzu Aduba, D 
Do you know that name? She is an actress or actor on Orange is the New Black. Orange is the New Black. Yes. Okay, it is yes. what I thought it was. Yes, I do know her. And she really struggled and she did this talk about going to her mom saying, hey, you know, I think I want to change my name. And she's like, why? And she was like, because people really have trouble pronouncing it. And her mom's response was basically, the hell you will. Because <laughs> if people can learn to read and pronounce Tchaikovsky properly, they can learn to read and pronounce Uzu Aduba. I thought, that is the perfect parental response to that. Like, no, I took care to give you that name. That name has value and you have value. And no, let somebody else work around it. I've met many, many within the Latino community who have gone out of their way to change their names, to Americanize, you know, Anglicize them. Me, this is the name I was given. My full name is Ingrid Yomara. And it's a, a really pretty traditional name combo. I know so many people with that combo. So to me, it's like, oh, it's normal. It's like... That's the first time I've heard that uh, combo. Really? Oh my gosh. (laughs) And I'm a Latina too. So like that goes to tell you, okay, there is space. And in different countries too. So like I I was born in Guatemala. And so like that was pretty common there. And Ingrid, most people don't think of it as a Latin name in any way, shape or form. And so they're oftentimes they're surprised. Like, I mean, I've had the moments where someone met me after seeing my name and they're like, oh, I was expecting a tall, leggy blonde. And I'm like, don't worry, because that's what's inside. (laughs) You know, it's like, (laughs) seriously, like, first of all, how rude. And secondly, thank you for informing me of your narrow view of a global world in which we live in. Yeah, you're talking to the Latina who went from a very Latina last name, like Ansaldua, to Smith. Yeah. And so I have one of the most common English names. It's literally the top three name. And how often I walk into a room and people are surprised. And I'm like, you know, what... What were you expecting? Exactly. And some will actually tell you if you ask. Uh, Oh, absolutely. (laughs) A friend and I just use it as a common joke now. Because at this point, it just goes to show you how much room we all have to grow in our preconceived ideas. Yes, absolutely. And we all have them, by the way. We all have biases. We all have prejudices. We all have these things. And there was this amazing tool you mentioned, and I'd love for you to share it with the audience to help us become a little more aware of those. What was the tool? Yes. Thank you for that. Yes. It is the Harvard Implicit Association Test is what it's called. You can Google it, Harvard IAT or Harvard Implicit Project, and it gives you an opportunity to essentially self-check. Where do you sit in the conversation? Where do you sit on the continuum of your perceptions of people with disabilities or people even your same gender? I often talk about this one one friend that did this and she's over 50. She works with a group that works with women over 50 to get back into, or people over 50 to get back into the workforce, but particularly women. And she did the test and then she came back. She said, I can't believe that I am biased against my own kind. And I was like, why wouldn't you believe that? She said, I couldn't believe that. And I said, well, we are all receiving the same marketing materials around the importance and the value of youth 
So, of course, mm-hmm. we're all going to be influenced on the ways that we perceive ourselves mm-hmm. and those that are like us and those that are unlike us. And that goes across the board. You mentioned education earlier and the value of experience. I always like to remind everyone that neither Steve Jobs or Bill Gates ever finished college. So there's that. And also Google and Facebook, I believe, have removed education as entry point or data point for employment. It is more about your interest and your passion for the work. And there are many people who have interest and have passion for the work, but don't have the financial means or access to certificate programs or formal education or advanced education that prohibit them from joining the workforce. And they can be just as brilliant. And that's why oftentimes when you see someone seemingly coming out of nowhere who has no college degree or whatever their story is, but is now showing up as a thought leader simply because they had the passion and the drive to learn about the topic. Folks forget education is just the foundation. It's the ABCs, right? And it's what we do with it. There are many, many people who go off to law school who never actually become lawyers or medical school who never become doctors. And then even those who do at a certain point in their career determine this isn't really where I want to be. And they completely drop out of that space and start something in a new space. The difference is people are afraid to start something new. But if you've been in something for long enough, you're not starting from scratch. You're starting from experience. We've heard that. And it's so true. The mistakes you make when you're 20, you're not going to make when you're 30, 40, or 50. And there is so much more that we can all do to be inclusive. And that is just lean into learning about other people. Yeah, That's the part that human aspect is the part that gets shelved or left on the cutting room floor, as they say in the film industry. Yeah. I mean, that's one of the the most simple ways is just facilitating like an open and honest conversation between parties. I love to be the question disruptor. <laughs> I'm not going to lie. I am not a small talk person. I'm a go deep type person. And I love to disrupt conversation by asking. It's funny. Any of my friends or family would tell you this is a common question I love to ask at dinner or at lunch. What are your dreams, hopes, and wishes? Yes. And people laugh when I ask things like that. And I'm like, because I don't want to talk about what your role is at work. I don't want you to ever think that our relationship is contingent upon what you do. It's really these other value points that we connect on, like purpose and what are you passionate about? What drives you? What excites you about coming to this place? Not what do you do at this place? Because inevitably, that's a byproduct of your passion, but it's really what led you here? What do you find interesting about me? What do I find interesting about you? It's these open and honest conversations that allow us to get to a point that say, man, all of the really talented people here didn't go to college. Right. Maybe we should take college off of our requirement list for employment here. It's these type of conversations that happen in leadership and in culture and even in our personal groups, to your point of us having influence where we are, that really start to push this forward. Yeah. Folks are, are really fearful of exposing what their true dreams are. For me, I'm not. I think the best way to sum up my dream is a good and kind world. That's just everywhere. 
it's not limited to one space, one room, one company. It's just everywhere. Oh, I know. (laughs) Yeah, a good and kind world. I mean, and when we think about leaning into vulnerability and we think about allowing other people in the room to feel seen, when we talk about these things, that's what it's rooted in. It's rooted in a good and kind world for everyone. And how are we a part of that? How are we in our our daily lives and our organizations and our sphere of influence? Like you said, whether you're a CEO or not, you have a sphere of influence. How are we leading the charge on that? And I've taken this very personally the last year of my life. And I'll tell you guys, one of the ways that I'm leading the charge is I don't like people to be disrupted while they're speaking. I don't care who is speaking. I think that everyone deserves an opportunity to speak and to be heard. So everywhere from my household to the rooms that I sit in and various hats I wear, if someone's speaking, I will pause the conversation and say, I really would like to hear what so-and-so was saying. Or if it's not an appropriate time to interrupt because maybe it is your CEO or someone talking, then I'll take the opportunity to stop with that person after and say, hey, you were saying something about X, Y, Z. What were you going to say? And you don't realize how impactful just something like that can be. And so that's one of the ways that I'm really leaning into it in my small sphere of influence, just allowing everyone to be heard. What about you? I love that, Sarah. That is so perfect because again, it really does, to me, it resonates with listen to understand, not to respond. It's that simple. It is, how can I get to know you better if I'm so busy talking about me and what I do? And I feel like we lean heavily, like, don't get me wrong. I I was very happy to see the first female VP elected in the country, but we lean very heavily on the I'm speaking. And I think that that's important too. I think it's important for you to speak up and assert yourself in a situation in which you're being interrupted. But I think it's equally as important to look for opportunities to allow someone else to be heard as well. So let's try, I'm speaking and he or she or they were speaking. Exactly. Let's try to implement all of those. Right. Absolutely. I think that's beautifully stated because it, it it's true. It is important when you're invited to speak, yes, to speak and to have the time that's allocated to you. At the same time, it is also really important not to interrupt folks when they are interjecting. Like, here we are, we're having conversation. You know, it's a little bit of Q&A, but it's more conversation. We're very aligned in a lot of ways. And I love what you're doing. You're amplifying voices. So, and I'm a big fan of that. It's actually one of the things that I love doing with different associations is amplifying female voices in the workplace. I think it's really important because, and to your point, is bringing the conversation back to the person who gets interrupted. People don't realize that when someone does that, they interrupt that train of thought. And so the person almost has to start again and it's off-putting. Besides it being rude, it is off-putting. So getting folks back into that mindset, or if you do want to have that conversation, want to have that continued conversation in whatever the space is, I think it is very important that we are conscientiously mindful of ourselves and our manners. And then it's one thing if you're asking a question, that's something different than interrupting. I've moderated tons of panels over the last 15 years and The one thing that it's prompted me to do is watch moderators when I'm in the audience. And oftentimes I find that they interject themselves 
as the preface to asking the question rather than including the conversation, the panelists, you were asked to ask them the questions and, and navigate the conversation. You weren't asked to be part of that. And I've had those experiences as well. I've been on the panels where all of a sudden it became the moderator show and it was just kind of, I get distracted. I'm sorry, I, I may lose train of thought simply because you're going down a very different path than what the panel that I was invited to sit on is about. And so you're not going to get the best out of me because in their own way, they were interrupting by making marketing opportunity for themselves. <laughs> yeah, interjecting their own thoughts. And really, you brought this up earlier, but there's a great opportunity with this shift in the business landscape that the pandemic really forced a lot of people into that really allows us as people, as orgs, as leaders to rise to the occasion of looking for opportunities to learn like this. On the digital space, only one person can talk at a time or no one can hear. That's a great opportunity to... <laughs> kind of re-invite this into your workplace culture. Maybe you should raise your hand before you have to speak if you're in a room with 10 really loud, <laughs> heavy speakers. It doesn't really leave room for other people. And I was having a great conversation the other day with a phenomenal business leader. His name is David Pachter. And he mentioned the fact that this online landscape has really given us the opportunity to see a lot of leaders in our orgs that maybe are more quiet, can come across as more timid, less ambitious, like really ignorant people <laughs> sometimes call them because they're not as loud, but it's really given a voice to some people who you normally wouldn't hear from or who normally didn't feel like they could sit at a table with so many strong personalities. And I love the opportunity that this brings, the digital landscape and having to learn our manners again. <laughs> Absolutely. And it's funny that you bring that up because I was actually going to mention societally in America, extroverts have always seemingly led the charge simply because they spoke up first, they spoke most often, they spoke up the loudest. And you're 100% correct that just because somebody is an introvert does not mean that they are not a good or effective leader or that they don't have great ideas. They just have a different approach to presenting them. And during pandemic, there was meme going around, check in on your extroverted friends. Why? Because those individuals are energized by the energy of people in a room, like having an audience, so to speak. That's what gives yep. them the energy to, and now here they are, in lockdown, we're still partially locked down and really struggling with navigating this distance and having to wait their turn to speak up. And then- And introverts <laughs> are living the dream. They're like, finally, finally, I have some quiet space. Yes. Finally, this person cannot talk over me and I get an opportunity to share. And I love that. And don't get me wrong, I'm extrovert. I'm proud of the extrovert team, but I really have such an appreciation. I'm married to a very brilliant introvert and he is very quiet and- soft-spoken, but brilliant. And so being in relationship for almost a decade now with an introvert, I have such an appreciation for the creative nature and intelligence that comes with sometimes being more introverted. I've met some really methodical, just very amazing introverted people. So I have a huge appreciation 
for introverts, even though I'm an extrovert. Right. No. And it's interesting. Opposites do attract. My spouse is also (laughs) an introvert. And so (laughs) I get that. And, and doing this kind of work and going through, you know, like being certified in a bunch of different assessments and type indicators and so on and, and whatnot. When it's part of your passion to understand the human condition, you start to understand just who people are and how to give them the room that they need in order to feel supported, feel safe enough to speak up and thrive and be honest. And it is interesting because it can be off-putting to those who aren't accustomed to it. So it's different. It can be taken in in many different ways. But at the end of the day, if you want to understand who someone is, listen twice as much as you speak. Yeah. And to cap that off, This is how we create resilience in our orgs, in our businesses, by visiting these basic principles that if we all can look at one another as human beings first and listen to hear and not to speak and look for opportunities to be kind and inclusive and to give space, then we can truly create organizations and places and businesses and cultures that people love coming to. And and I encourage everyone to look for an opportunity to, in your small sphere of influence, to look for an opportunity to implement something big, small, speak up, however uh, you go about it. But look for an opportunity to have a, have a voice here and be part of helping us be better together. As we sign off here, I do want to ask Ingrid one last question, which is what's something we can do more of in your opinion in this space? Get to know ourselves better because without really truly understanding ourselves, can we truly begin to understand others? You know, a lot of people are afraid of going deep within themselves, digging deep, doing the work. But the reality is the more comfort you have with knowing who you are, the more ease you develop for understanding who others are. Oh, that is so wonderfully said. Ingrid, I can't thank you enough for the time you spent with us today and this conversation. I know we went several different places, guys, but I mean, it is such a beautiful thing to be able to have open and honest conversation around this. And I hope today you've gotten even just a tidbit of something that will help you think on how you can implement some small tactic in your business that will help address this issue of diversity, equity, and inclusion. We're going to get all of these great resources that Ingrid mentioned linked in the show notes for you. But to cap it off, Ingrid, I just want to say thank you. Oh, Sarah, it's my pleasure. Again, my pleasure to always have a conversation on what we can be doing better or more of to create a good and kind world. We hope you enjoyed this week's episode. If you'd like to know how to get involved and share your story, head over to our website at b2bgrowthhacks.com. Also, while you're there, subscribe to our newsletter so you don't miss the latest conversations happening here on B2B Growth Hacks. This podcast is sponsored by Speakerbox Media, where we hand-build podcasts just like this one to create online communities for brands like yours. If you'd like to learn more, head over to speakerboxmedia.com.